Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Hi, everybody. My name is Rachel. So my husband and I um, and our two little children, we've been coming here for a few years now. So today I'm going to talk to you on prayer. Gosh, that's loud. Is it loud? It sounds loud. Anyways, so I, um, throughout my Christian walk, I've gone to various churches um, and different denominations from my parents' very reformed Presbyterian, um, I like to call them lovingly the frozen chosen, um, to more Pentecostal settings, and I'm which in which I'm much more comfortable. So if anybody today, how do I hold this so I don't? Okay, if anybody today um, just feels the spirit move and wants to shout out an amen or a yes or wave your hands in the air like you just don't care, I'm not saying you have to do it, but I am totally fine if you do. Um, So today, we're going to be covering a lot of ground, um, and I know it's going to be a lot, but my uh, prayer today is not that you would just follow everything religiously, but that God would just speak to you however he sees fit, Um, whether it's one small point or the entire thing. I just pray that you would come here and encounter him. So before I start to talk on prayer, let's pray. Father God, um, we just love you so much. And we thank you that you are sovereign and that you are Lord over this place. You are Lord over your children. And we just ask that everything that's from you would just be planted in people's hearts today. And whatever's not from you would just fall to the ground. And we just say that you are in charge. May you be glorified, Jesus. In your name, amen. So when I was asked to do a talk on prayer, I'll be really honest, I wasn't really sure because It's a huge topic. It's so vast and it's so deep and I could be here all day long. But um, I prayed about it, as you should, and as I prayed about it, the Lord's Prayer came to mind and I thought, well, this is a good place to start. After all, it is the model that Jesus gave us on how to pray. So if you're struggling as to how to pray exactly, this is the place to start. But then as I meditated on the Lord's Prayer, um, I also felt that it gives us a good why of prayer as well, too, and not just a how. See, I'm all about the why. It drives my husband crazy. So he's a chef, and every time he tries to teach me anything new in the kitchen, I'm just like, why? Why do we cut the carrots that way? Why do we sweat our aromatics? So if you're like me and you're always chasing the why, I hope that this talk will be helpful for you today. So this is, um, I picked the prayer in Matthew because I really love its poetic nature and the doxology in the end. This is the basic structure of it. It starts with the address to Father God, the so-called thou petitions, the we petitions, the doxology, and the conclusion. And as I really prayed into this this prayer, I kind of recognized a, a pattern that was reminiscent of something called inclusio. So inclusio is a literary device that's found throughout the Bible. And it was really popular during um, Jesus' time. And it's basically where a topic is, um, or a theme is placed at the beginning and at the end of a section. And 
um, it's used to kind of frame things and put things in perspective, and it's really useful to understanding a, a, a type of scripture. And so I'm not sure that the Lord's Prayer was written with inclusio in mind, but I just recognized this pattern, and I felt as I had meditated on it that it gave us a really good idea as to the why of prayer. So I'm just going to run you through the mirror passages as I saw them now. So first it starts with our Father in heaven and amen, so the beginning and the end. It then goes on to the glory of his name and the glory of his person, his kingdom, the kingdom of God, his will and his power, his provision and his protection, the matter of sin, and our attitude to others. And so these seven pairings, I think, give us a good why of prayer. And today, to be really controversial and just mess with you guys a bit, I'm going to start in the middle. So prayer is an act of love. So I think it's really helpful to look at Jesus' cultural and religious context when we're looking at these scriptures. And at the time that Jesus was teaching on prayer, he would have been very well versed in the religious prayers of his day, the so-called tefillah. And much of the Lord's Prayer mirrors the tefillah, but I think it's worth noting where it differs and what this tells us. And this is one of these instances, because you see, whereas the religious prayers of the day would have included a plea for forgiveness, here Jesus explicitly ties our forgiveness to forgiving others. And he, in fact, he says so in the scripture that follows. And I think from this we can see that love for others is at the heart of Christian prayer. And I think a lot of times we read the scripture of prayer and forgiveness separately, but I really think they go hand in hand. Because in praying for others, we're taking it one step further. Prayer is a selfless act of love. It's not seen or recognized. It's not appreciated. And a lot of time we don't see the fruit at the, right then or even at all. But I think that when we pray for others, God molds our heart to his purposes. He fills our heart with a measure of his love, and likewise, he allows us to partake in his burden. And what's more, and I found this, is that when you partake in God's burden for the world, you also partake in his joy. I can tell you from experience, there's nothing like it. When you pray for your friend who's battling debilitating disease, and she overcomes it, every time you see her beautiful, smiling face, you'll be reminded of God's goodness and also about how valuable her life is. When you're praying for that, sorry, I'm getting emotional. When you're praying for that couple to conceive and they're finally blessed with a baby, how immeasurably precious would that child's life be to you? Oftentimes, the value of something is determined by the labor that goes into it, the cost. And I'm not saying that we labor to win God's favor in prayer. That's not what I'm saying. But Paul says that we're co-laborers with Christ. And I've found that when I labor in prayer with him for others, suddenly my life is filled with things of immeasurable worth. My friend's picture of health, the, babies in the, pew, the baby in the pews or stackable chairs behind me, the marriage of, the, of a young couple in church. These are my treasures in heaven. When I pray for others, these are the riches that I'm accumulating. It is the antidote to entitlement and apathy to selfishness and despair. It is truly a blessing. And when I'm saying labor and prayer, I'm not saying hours spent in laborious intercession. No, Jesus actually speaks about that here. He says, don't have long prayers with empty words. In fact, I often think that the levels of our faith are reflected in the length of our prayer. So a prayer for others can be something like be healed 
or Jesus save them, or God help. What's important here is not the quality or eloquence or length of our supplications, but that our hearts are aligned with his purposes for the world. And just as as the father invited his son to enter in his joy at the return of the prodigal brother, so God invites you to partake in his joy over every battle won in prayer. Prayer is an act of sanctification. So sanctification means something being set aside as holy or being freed of sin. So this pair of passages speaks of repentance and temptation. In other words, the stain of sin and the lure of sin. And this is a why of prayer, because through prayer we can be freed of both. I think that oftentimes we think of repentance as a swear word. Like when we hear it, we see like this Bible-bashing Christian sternly saying, repent, thud. But guys, repent is not a swear word. It really, really isn't. Did you know that you're not perfect? (laughs) See, I am so blessed to have an amazing family who reminds me every day that I am not perfect. And this is the thing. It's impossible to be perfect in an imperfect world. It's impossible to be perfect in an imperfect world. The Bible speaks about a spiritual battle. And when I think of it, of the fact that it's impossible to be perfect in an imperfect world, I often think of a battleground. There's a war going on all around. Things are exploding. Dirt and dust is in the air. Bullets are flying, and I'm walking right through it. I get covered in the muck of the battle. I get injured and walk with a limp. Sometimes in my pain and fear, I make bad decisions. And this is the sin that I carry with me. Because you see, when you're walking through a battlefield, it's impossible to come out unscathed and unaffected. This is why repentance is necessary in order to heal and be restored to wholeness. What I think this notion demonstrates is the beautiful call through Jesus and his redemptive work on the cross. Because walking through this world, we can't help but be tainted by the sin in and around us the brokenness of it, and inevitably we will rub up against it and fall short ourselves. But the good news is we have a God who in his perfection made a way for us to be cleansed and healed of that sin. And he is willing. He's willing, guys. He says it in his word. What would you do, I wonder, if a beloved friend showed up at your door and he'd just been in war or in a battle and he's dirty and bloody, and carrying the burden of war, what would you do? Even if he'd done some awful, terrible things out of anger or fear, even if he'd gotten some debris in his eyes and been blinded and walked down some really wrong paths, would you say, oh, he's fine as he is. We gotta love people where they are and just send him on his way? Or would you long to see your friend's true self Joyful, healed, and unencumbered, shine through in spite of the battle around him. Would you not say, come, be cleansed, lay down your burden? If you had the means, would you not say, come and be healed? This is the Lord's call to repentance. It's a call to lay off the dirt and filth of this world and be whole once more. But more than that, it's a call to walk higher to leave this particular battle behind you so that you can walk in more freedom. I'm not talking about being perfect here, not at all. What I'm talking about is an attitude of the heart that repeatedly seeks to come before God's throne 
and be cleansed, to be set free and turn away from our old ways, no matter how long it takes, because it's a process as well as an attitude. And when you turn to him in this manner and you surrender your brokenness to him, he gently leads you down better paths. He leads you away from temptation. And not only does repentance have an effect on you, but it affects the world around you as well. Did you know that there's a pattern to revivals? Every move of God appears to have been preceded by a movement of prayer and humbling before God. See, several revivals in history, including that of Azusa Street, was birthed out of the holiness movement, which saw sanctification as a core tenet of our faith. And I have to say that I've experienced that myself as well. So 10 years ago, about more or less, I lived in China, in Shanghai, and that's where I met my amazing husband. And there we worshiped in an amazing multi-denominational church that was pastored by our pastor, Dale, who was an incredible, meek um, son of God. He was just a good man. And he was very, very sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And there was a time in that church where the Holy Spirit started speaking to several people about hidden sin in the congregation. And Pastor Dale, being who he was, he, he listened and he heeded. And I will never forget a Sunday we had a service where there was no preach, there was no notices, but the pastor just had us come before God, humble ourselves worshipfully in repentance. It was incredible. And right after that, things started happening. It was crazy. People started coming from everywhere to our church. They started holding meetings. The things that happened in these meetings, I mean, I can't even, I can't even describe. There was creative miracles, there was miracles of healing, there was miracles of um, provision. People were having visions and dreams. It was incredible. And one night, the Holy Spirit and his still small voice led me and a few friends down the dark streets of Shanghai. We just followed the voice until we came to this little establishment. And as we went in, we didn't know why we were there. We went in and we asked, are there any Christians here? And they said, yes, one. And the woman we found was blind, and she was the blind pastor of an underground church in China. Because you see, the church in China is heavily persecuted. And as we told her that we felt the Lord led us there, she just started through tears telling us that she'd been praying and crying out to God for a touch from him. And he sent us there that night. And so we ministered to her. We went to see her church, and all, most of her congregation were blind as well, too, and we ministered to them. And it was just... It was just so incredible. Like, it was such a blessing to me and to my friends. And I will never forget the knowledge that, that planted in my heart that prayer is an act of sanctification and sanctification is a catalyst for transformation. Prayer is an act of faith. When you pray, you're basically throwing your hands up and saying, I give up. You're acknowledging that you can't do it on your own, that there is someone who loves you, who's higher than you, who can sovereignly influence your circumstances. And did you know that faith is an incredible thing? Jesus said that by it, mountains can be moved, people healed, fig trees murdered. Let me tell you a story of faith-filled prayer. Andrew's grandmother, Andrew's with the kids right now, but he knows the story. Andrew's grandmother was an amazing woman of God. And she's with Jesus now, but when she was younger, living in rural Canada, she felt really strongly she wanted to go to Bible school. 
And now needless to say, at that time, for women to go to Bible school was very much unheard of, especially because it cost money to do so. So when she told her father that she wanted to go there, he said that he would allocate one plot of his land to her. And any profits from the sale of the crops of that land would go to her. And if it covered Bible school, she could go. Now there was a frost forecast for their region that threatened to decimate all the crops. And Andrew's Nana, she prayed over her plot of land day after day. And after the frost had come and gone, her plot of land was the only one in the whole region that wasn't decimated by the frost. And so you see, in answering her prayer, not only did God provide for her, but he confirmed her calling in the Lord. And she went to Bible school, and she, um, and she became a traveling preacher. And on one of those trips, she met Andrew's grandfather. And now three generations later, I have those prayers to thank for my family and my children. So you see, when you look to God for provision and protection, he will come through. And not only that, but often the blessings will reach far beyond what you can see right now. Prayer is an act of faith. Prayer is an act of surrender. Did you know you're not in control? I think nowadays, especially in the prosperous West, we've created this near-perfect illusion of control. We've got food available at the touch of a button. There's no notion of crops or harvest. We've got insurance policies that seemingly cover all eventualities. And I think this is why the pandemic was so mentally distressing for many, because it really shattered that sense of safety and control. But the truth is none of us is in control. And the good news is, None of us is in control. Because honestly, how awful would that be? I mean, look at our history. We're, we're great human beings, but generally as a species, we're not the brightest. In fact, I would say we're a bit like children sometimes. We're a bit immature, a bit slow to learn, a little bit selfish and a bit self-involved. And although bombarded with knowledge, unable to make heads or tails with it. Now, I'm not all-knowing like God, I'm not but I do know more than my two little children. This is why I rightfully expect them to listen to me and yield to my will sometimes. The other day I was walking down the pavement with my baby girl, and I don't know if you've seen her, she's very cute. And she was insistent, insistent that I let her walk on the road where the cars were driving. Now, because I wanna be a good mother and I love her, I'm not gonna be like, okay, baby girl, you go, you do you. No, I'm, I'm not gonna say that. I'm gonna say, no baby, that's crazy. That will get you killed. Likewise, you have a heavenly father who is all-knowing, eternal, and loving. He knows the beginning from the end, all the moving parts, and he loves you. Why wouldn't you then wanna say, your will be done? For you are all-powerful. Jesus said it. I've often found in life that when I struggle to surrender to God's will, it's because I don't believe that, one, he's good, or I don't believe that he's powerful and in charge, or I don't believe that he loves me. These are the three lies that hinder surrender. But these are lies, guys. They're lies. And in prayer, you're both surrendering and discerning his will. You're declaring his lordship over you, trusting that he loves you, that he's powerful, and he knows all things. Romans 8.28 says... We know that all, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
People often forget the last bit. It's his purpose, guys. Pray to him. Surrender to his purpose in your lives, and he will work all things out for your good. Prayer is an act of hope. There is a kingdom greater than the United Kingdom. <laughs> greater than any kingdom in this world. And that's the kingdom of God. And it's both here and yet to come. It's not far off, and yet when we pray, we look to it with hope and anticipation of the day where God will rule and reign over creation. Guys, heaven, the new heaven, the new earth, these are not concepts or vague notions of cloud-filled spaces with people walking around singing on harps. It's a real and tangible reality that lies before us. Everything you do and are here, everything you do and are here, insofar as it aligns with the will of God, will find con continuity beyond this life. Your body, your personality, a purpose. When we pray to our God in heaven and ask for his kingdom to come, we are exercising, exercising that hope for a better world. We are fixing our eyes on what lies beyond our circumstances and limitations, the home to which we are called. At the same time, we're expressing a desire to see that kingdom come, to see the blind receive sight, the lame walk, and the sick healed. It's not a frivolous thing to pray this prayer. It's an act of boldness and a plea that God would demonstrate here and now for everyone to see the hope that is laid up for us in heaven. Prayer is an act of worship. So, this pair of verses couples the parallel notions of God's glory and his name being glorified. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always found this verse really puzzling because God's name is holy. Surely, why would I have to be played? Why would I have to pray for it to be holy? It's like praying for water to be wet. That makes no sense to me. <laughs> but I found um, Kenneth Bailey's book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, really helpful on this because in it he says that really this passage would be better translated as, let your name be hallowed. And he links it to Ezekiel 36, in which God speaks about his name being defiled by Israel through the shedding of blood and the worshiping of idols. And as a result, God acts in his sovereignty to sanctify his own name. So what's interesting in this passage in Ezekiel is that the holiness of God's name is directly linked to the blessings of the land. How many of you guys watched the Queen's funeral? Pretty much everyone. So, and how many of you guys watched the Accession Council and the King's Proclamation? Probably less, so yeah. So I did, and in watching there was something that really struck me. So you see, I didn't grow up in the UK. I grew up in Asia and Switzerland. And in both of these places, I hardly had any Christian friends. Now this is fairly understandable for Asia, but less so for Switzerland, because Switzerland, after all, was the seat of the Reformation arguably a great move of God. And Reformation history is an integral part of Swiss identity. But in all other ways, Switzerland is a very secular society. Now I know that the UK is as well in many ways, but I've always found that overall the atmosphere here is much less hostile to Christianity. In London, you'll find thriving churches on what feels like every corner. 
in the workplace, I was comfortable speaking about my faith. If I would tell people I'm Christian in the workplace in Switzerland, they would openly mock me or just completely shun me. When I became a Christian, I lost pretty much all my friends in Switzerland. And those that remained went through great lengths to make sure that I wasn't, in fact, part of a cult. And I always wondered, what was it about the UK that allowed a genuine faith in Jesus to flourish in such a way in comparison with most of the continent? And when I watched the proclamation after the Queen's passing, there's, I feel like I got part of an answer. And you may disagree, but bear with me here, because during the proceedings, there are a few instances where God's sovereignty is declared. It says that Charles is now king by the grace of God, and it acknowledges that God is the one by whom kings and queens are made. And I know that a lot of this is ceremonial, and we may all have different opinions on the merit of the place of the monarchy, and that's not what I'm talking about here, but I can't help but thinking that having a sovereign symbolically reigning over this country, who at least in words declares allegiance to our God, will have something to do with the spiritual richness and blessings of this country. The late queen was not shy about her faith, and in many instances, she made it her mission that God's name, that Jesus' name would be glorified. And I somehow don't think we realize how much of a grace has been imparted to this land as a result of it. I'm grateful for it, and I'm grateful for her life because of it. When God's name is honored, the land is blessed. A few weeks ago, um, Viv spoke about the passage in Isaiah. And I think this really shows as well that when, when we recognize God's glory and holiness, we too are changed. Because Isaiah comes to face to face with God's holiness. And his first exact reaction is to be instantly aware of his own wretchedness. But God doesn't just leave him there because right away he's sanctified. And right after being sanctified, God issues a call. And right after he answers the call, he is sent. Do you want to know your purpose in life, your true self? Behold God's glory. Come in in repentance, be cleansed and answer the call. Let the eyes of your heart be enlightened, that you would know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, as, and his incomparably great power towards us who believe. Prayer is an act of identity and authority. I was like, oh, I really should pick one of both, but really it's, it's both of them, identity and authority. Do you remember at the start I mentioned that it was worth taking note of where Jesus deviated from traditional Hebrew prayers? So this is another instance, because in this prayer, quite unusually, Jesus starts a prayer with the Aramaic word Abba, Father. And it's an intimate word for Father God. And while it was not unique in the Jewish context for God to be referred to as Father, here God, Jesus uses it as a title. And so the Bible says that through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, the Holy Spirit gives us the spirit of son sonship through which we cry, Abba, our Father. And when we pray, we're communing with our Father, our Heavenly Dad. So prayer is not just about petitions, but mainly about dwelling in His presence, knowing Him as Father. I wonder who the person is that you're closest to. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe a best friend. My husband Andrew is both of those things to me, but I'm very blessed to have a very close relationship to my parents. And they live in Switzerland. In the last six years, pretty much every day I've called them to talk to them. 
And sometimes we talk, but most of the time we just go about our business with each other on the phone because we love being in each other's presence, sharing our space. My father now is Alzheimer's, so a lot of the time he struggles to finish a sentence or make sense of most things. I'm getting emotional here. <clears throat> so now more than ever, I spend most of my time sitting in his presence. And although he has few words left, oh Jesus, help me get through this talk. Um, I know that in sitting with each other, in sitting with my dad, we're being filled and silently affirming our love for each other. And perhaps your relationship with your parents isn't that good, or perhaps, like me, you're losing a parent. But the Bible says that God is a father to the fatherless. And when you pray, you commune with God, and in doing so, you allow him to fill that gap. You encounter in God the most perfect father, one not burdened or broken by sin, and a father who can never, ever be eclipsed by sickness or death. And as much as our present identity has been shaped and formed by our earthly father, when you commune with God, our father, your identity as a child of God will be revealed to you and start shaping you. And out of that identity flows authority. And in that authority, we say amen. Amen, which is a Hebrew word that means so be it. It's a word used to confirm and endorse what's been said. It's a sign of our authority in God. And at the same time, it expresses our humility, submitting to his wisdom and will. So through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Earlier, I mentioned the amazing move that we saw in China. And um, soon after that, I felt called to return to the UK with the promise that God would do the same thing here. And if China was a high, then the time that followed was definitely a low. And I'm not saying it's because of the UK, not at all. Um, but I transferred to a job in the bank, so my background's in finance, and I didn't realize that this job, the norm, was 80-hour weeks. So we'd start at 9 a.m., and we'd work until 1 or 2 a.m. every day, um, every week, and mostly on weekends as well, too. And at the same time, my mother fell gravely ill in Switzerland and was in and out of hospitals. And because of my workload, I was unable to see her. And I was, I was exhausted. I was tired and stressed. It was impossible to build friendships or community. <clears throat> but I think worst of all, what was hardest for me is that in China, I had built this habit. Every Tuesday night, I would set time aside to be with God. And I wouldn't pray at him or do devotionals or even worship. I would sit in his presence and wait for him to show up. Sometimes I'd just pray Speak, God, your servant's listening, the Samuel prayer, or just Holy Spirit, come. And I'll be honest, the first time I did this, I fell asleep. So, <laughs> but soon after, things started to change. Incredible things happened, and God showed up. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that those Tuesday nights, I called them my date nights with Jesus. Those Tuesday nights were the most significant part of my Christian walk up until that point, short of my salvation. And when I moved back here, I had no time for that. I wasn't able to, and so my lifeline felt like it was gone. And the only way I could describe my state of mind during that time is broken and bewildered. I didn't understand why God would take me from the mountaintop into this. I started losing weight. My hair started falling out. 
and I was struggling with debilitating anxiety. It felt like I was being battered by a storm from all sides, and I was helpless against it. And one night, I remember feeling that storm beating down on me, and I just tried to pray. I tried to pray out against it, and it felt like all my prayers were just falling to the ground. And it dawned on me. I was not meant to cower in fear. The Holy Spirit did not make me a slave to fear, but a daughter of the Most High God. And something just landed in my spirit. Something about who he was, who I am, and the authority that I have in him. And so shortly thereafter, I was sitting at work, and it was a Thursday night, and I was looking forward to a weekend off because it was a slow week. And two of my colleagues came to me and said, Rachel, we've been called into a meeting with our Paris office. And they'd been there a long time, and they'd explained to me that basically meant working through the night and working over the weekend. And I was just, I'd had enough. I just said, no, <laughs> I am not working this weekend. I'm going to pray. And I marched off to the toilets. And in the toilets, in my little cubicle, I prayed my little heart out. I bound and I loosed. <laughs> I decreed and I declared. If anybody had walked into the cubicle next to me, they would have thought, what the heck have I just walked into? And the words were not important here, but what was important is that I was standing on who I was in God and what I knew my father had for me. And the Bible says that he gives his beloved rest. And when I came out of the toilets, my friends had just came out of the, a meeting and they looked at me kind of shocked. And they said that the Paris office had called them to say that we had a new project going, but every time they offered to do the work, they said, no, 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 it's fine, we'll do it. No, no, it's fine, we'll do it. And they said that this had never happened before. And after that, this happened over and over again. And every time my friends would say, Rachel, we're going into a meeting to discuss work. You need to go pray. <laughs> and every single time God came through, every single time, I kid you not. And after that, when I was moved to another department, one of my friends, who's not a Christian, in fact, she's a very devout adherent to another faith, she would call me whenever she was struggling and she'd say, Rachel, I need peace. Rachel, I need joy. Rachel, I need wisdom. And we would get a conference room or we'd go stand in a corner of Canary Wharf tube station and I'd pray really quickly, peace or joy or whatever she needed. And every time she felt a tangible difference and every time she would say to me, Rachel, where did you get this from? And every time I would say, it's not where, it's from whom. Because you see, she wasn't encountering amazing Rachel or some special anointing or anything. What she was encountering in those prayers was the presence of the living God. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And if you have given your life to Christ, then that same power that rose him from the dead lives in you. So pray, church. Pray that you would know the Father of lights and through him know who you are and who is in you. Pray that his name would be lifted up so that this land would be blessed. Pray that your eyes would remain fixed on him and the kingdom that is to come. Pray that you would be emptied of sinful desires that war against your calling and that you may discern your purpose in him. Pray that you would know him as provider and protector. And finally, pray so that you may have his heart and love for people and the nations. Pray, church, and see what he can do. I'm going to ask um, the band to come up now to start praying and playing and praying, hopefully. <laughs> and we're going to lead into a time of ministry. Um, and so I would just ask that if any of you need prayer, 
that would you would stick your hand up and let somebody come around you. Now, there's something that came to mind today. Um, my four-year-old is struggling to understand the concept of Jesus, and I'm trying to explain to him that Jesus is in us and everywhere. And the other day in the playground, I caught him running around going, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And when I asked him what he was doing, he said, Mommy, you said Jesus was everywhere. And so so, um, I just had a feeling that maybe there's somebody here that feels like that today. Like maybe you don't understand this whole thing about Jesus is in heaven and with me and in me and around. And you just feel like in prayer you're going, Jesus, Jesus, I want to see you. If that's you today, I would just ask that you'd have somebody pray for you, that they can bless you, that you would be able to encounter him in a new way, and that you would see him. And uh, as the band starts playing, I'm going to... Oh, once you're organized. Um, yeah, I just, I just want to ask that... If there's any of you who have been battling in prayer for a long time over something and you've just not seen that mountain move, I just want to acknowledge that and I just want you to know that you're seen. There are seasons in our life where that happens as well too and I'm not negating that at all. I just want to thank you for your faithfulness. And so today, if you could come forward or raise your hand and just let the body of Christ come around you and pray for you and help you carry that burden. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.